0: Hi, I'm Matt Fidler, and this is Very Bad Words, the podcast about swearing. On this episode, we're not focusing on specific bad words so much, but on reactions to perceived bad words. And that reaction to these written words is something I think is very bad. What I'm talking about is the banning of books. And I started thinking about this topic during a moment when I was recording this one interview for my podcast about censorship in broadcast. Anyways, I was interviewing public radio producer Sarah Montague about the Supreme Court decision around Pacifica Radio, airing George Carlin's Seven Words You Can Never Say on television.
1: Now, it's interesting that everybody focuses on that Pacifica story. You know that the other thing they did was that they read all of Ulysses live on the air, because Ulysses, as you know, was the landmark case in print publishing. When Sarah
0: said this, I thought to myself, man, I've never read James Joyce's masterpiece from cover to cover and I'm probably not going to do it this year. But Jill, our producer here at Very Bad Words, said she would do it because she's just that dedicated to the show.
2: I decided to just kind of take one for the team and go out and buy James Joyce's Ulysses for this episode. And when I went there and I bought, you know, I, I went to the guy and I put the book on the countertop and he looked at me and he said... Oh, you're a brave soul. If I want to put it simply, it is beautifully written. It is very difficult. I don't know exactly what I'm reading. (laughs) All of the words are in my native tongue, is English. But when you put all of these together sometimes, it's just complete gibberish. And oftentimes, the gibberish is just him describing the setting. It's what Bloom sees, and it's very descriptive. And, I mean, this guy is... I mean, it's a crackhead. Like, (laughs) it's just one thought here and one thought there. And I had to put it down several times just because I felt anxiety. I also, I knew that this was supposed to be like a very sexually graphic novel. So far, the thing that has grossed me out the most is the introduction of Leopold Bloom, where he talks about how he likes to eat the uh, organs of animals, specifically the kidneys, because he likes the, the tinge of urine. I'm like, that's disgusting.
0: Today, we explore the very bad words inside of James Joyce's Ulysses and how they helped guarantee America's freedom of artistic expression. Yeah, Ulysses is one of those books. Maybe you've read it, more likely you haven't. Well, fortunately, it's not necessary to have read this book to enjoy this episode, because I brought an expert to help us out, Lisa
1: Flanagan. Ulysses is an epic novel of an average day, and it presents the many beautiful ways and details and facets of what is often the mundane humanity of people.
0: Mundane humanity of people? Okay, before you think I've gone too far off the rails in this episode, there's an important point here. Ulysses is famous for being explicitly sexual, and not in some sort of Daniel Steele erotic kind of way, but in a very real, Honest way, and it was written in the early twentieth century when legit authors just didn't write so explicitly about sex and other taboo subjects. So the importance of this book is more about overall frankness of sexual content than the George Carlin words that so often get you censored today.
1: I went and checked, and most of the George Carlin words are in there.
0: They are. Um, can I can I go down the list? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, shit, fuck cunt cocksucker
1: not cocksucker basically everything except cocksucker and motherfucker which i think are just more modern in that regard
0: they're really compounded words anyways exactly so lisa flanagan is a singer actor and directed the 2017 bloomsday festival which is a celebration of the novel ulysses held every year on june 16th which is the day ulysses takes place in 1904 and named after the main character, Leopold Bloom. This is Lisa's first year directing the whole festival, but she's been involved with New York's Bloomsday Festival, their Bloomsday Festivals all over the world, for years.
1: It's a bit of a family business, because my aunt is an actress named Fanula Flanagan, who has been doing the Molly Bloom soliloquy and Joyceian characters, and worked with Joyce since oh, uh, decades and decades ago. For my part, I started actually doing uh, Bloomsday in 2004. And this year, I've geared it around the banning and unbanning of Ulysses. So I'm drawing this around that.
0: And this is why we're talking to Lisa about Ulysses. Because around this time, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, there were groups actively banning books in this country despite First Amendment protections of freedom of speech and freedom of the press.
1: So in that time, one of the things that a lot of literature was subject to was the Comstock Act. Um, And it was these rules on obscenity and pornography that meant if you wanted your books to get to anyone, they had to go through the post office. That was the only way. There was no UPS yet. There was no FedEx. And so you had these arbiters of taste.
0: Arbiters of taste? This doesn't seem very American to me, so I got a hold of James LaRue, hoping to get some answers.
3: Okay, well, my name is James LaRue, and I'm the director of the Office for Intellectual Freedom, and this is uh, part of the American Library Association.
0: And as a librarian, James minces no words about his feelings for Anthony Comstock.
3: Well, Anthony Comstock was a, um, what's the word, how best to say this, a disordered mind. Um, He was a... He was somebody who was absolutely obsessed with the idea that women should not know anything at all about birth control. Wait,
0: birth control? Well, times were modernizing. Women's rights campaigns were gaining traction along with reproductive rights, led by people like Margaret
3: Sanger. And so he was a um, fierce opponent of um, Margaret Sanger, who was trying to provide this sort of family planning information to people. And so he was so vociferous about trying to prevent any knowledge about sex education or any sort of interference with um, the natural order of reproduction cycles that uh, he got himself a post officer position where he tried to make a name for himself.
0: And with the backing of other New York elites who thought they knew better than everyone, New laws were passed that didn't outlaw any kind of writing because that would be difficult to achieve in this country. So they found a way around that pesky First Amendment.
3: And the idea is, well, okay, even if something might be found legal, the transmission of it, shipping it from one place to the other is illegal. And so that was a way for the government to step in and stamp out this scourge of pornography or obscenity by um, using the power of commerce, right? You can't ship it anywhere. You can't mail it.
0: So Anthony Comstock and his elite puritanical buddies formed an advocacy group called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And the laws they created to stop the distribution of pornography through the mail were called the Comstock Laws or the Comstock Act. Meanwhile, in the 19-teens, a notable young Irish author named James Joyce was asked if he wanted to publish his new novel in Margaret Anderson's literary magazine, The Little Review which was published in New York City's Greenwich Village.
1: The Little Review was actually the first publishing of Ulysses in a serialized format.
0: And the Little Review, existing in the height of Greenwich Village, Bohemia, knew what they were doing by publishing this. They'd been in trouble before for other things that they had published in the past.
1: I think they had already been taken to court earlier because of publishing anarchistic material in their magazine already. Anarchism was a big trigger at that point. And actually, I think that was what first put Little Review on kind of in the eye, public eye, and gave people kind of like, "Eh, they might be up to something. And then Ulysses got caught up in the larger suit against them later on in 1921, 1922.
0: So the story goes that some girl got a promotional copy of the Little Review in the mail with a chapter of Ulysses in it. The girl was offended and wrote a letter to the Manhattan DA. And since the work was distributed using the mail, the Comstock Law could be invoked. And since it was published in New York City, and the complaint was in New York City, the DA could prosecute in New York. So charges were filed, not against the author, James Joyce, but the publishers at the Little Review. Again, not going after the artist and his freedom of expression, but of the transportation of this pornography.
1: The publishers, yeah, uh, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap uh, and of the Little Review were brought up on charges by, uh, I believe, the district attorney of Manhattan. This was a local case. It was like New York Regional Southern Court. And they were brought up on, on charges of obscenity. And this was because it was, you know, it was distributed. There was uh, not a huge distribution, but at some newsstands in New York. And the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which was a strange organization. Which,
0: by the way, was founded by Anthony Comstock.
3: And I remember that he was very proud of the fact that he had driven several pornographers as he styled them for doing various things. He had driven them to suicide, and he was very, very happy with that. And so, again, we see in the times past this notion of the politics of personal destruction, somebody using the power of government to go after and prosecute and persecute um, people to shut them up because their um, sex was so dangerous.
0: Well, wow, he drove them to suicide just by, what, continual harassment or bashing them in
3: public? or Oh, absolutely. And, you know, threatening them with various court actions and keeping them and coming back to courts and throwing them in prison and, or threatening to do all this stuff. And so, uh, yeah, he made several comments about uh, he was proud of this in his life, that he had driven pornographers to suicide. So the New York Society
0: for the Suppression of Vice encouraged the DA to prosecute the publishers of The Little Review over Ulysses, you know, for the children.
1: It was a group of wealthy people who thought they knew what everyone should and should not be reading.
0: And the case goes to court. And right away, Margaret Anderson and James Heap are trying to make the case that just because Ulysses is explicit that it's not necessarily pornography. But since the book was released serially and the complaint was just about one issue of the little review, the one chapter published in that issue, they couldn't make the case for the larger context of the book, just the one chapter published in the issue.
1: They only presented, I believe, the section of uh, Gertie on the Beach, um, or that chapter that had been published, which was basically Bloom looking up a girl's skirt as she's leaning back on a beach watching fireworks and jerking off to it. And because it was published serially, they didn't have to present it in context of a larger story. They were like, no, this is what was released.
0: And the defense tried to put it into greater context by reading sections of the book in court to show that this was a groundbreaking book and that some graphic portions of the book were just the character doing and thinking very real human things. I mean, sorry, sex is an important part of the human condition. So Jane Heap wanted to read parts of the book in court so the work could defend itself.
1: But she claimed that like they weren't allowed to read it in court because there were women present.
0: Yes, there were women present. Two of them, in fact. Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, the publishers. So they were saving these women from themselves. And there was just no way to win. And they didn't. And the opinion of the court, was written against the book.
1: What was it? There was things like Molly Bloom's soliloquy was deemed unparlor-like, just wonderfully ridiculous words.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you know what unparlor-like means?
1: Well, now, since we don't have parlors now anymore, I'm I'm not entirely certain, but I think it means you can't play dominoes listening to it. Um, no, I I don't know. It's it's that very proprietary singular sense of what is right and what is not. And the people who were the arbiters of that were very proud of their ability to determine what was and wasn't.
0: When we come back, we're going to hear one of the more salacious chapters of Ulysses and hear what happened to give freedom of artistic expression back to the galaxy. I mean, country. Stay with us. Welcome back to Very Bad Words. I'm Matt Fidler. Today, we're hearing about what some have called the most dangerous book in the world. The book was banned largely in part because it gets very graphic and personal about the thoughts and actions of its main character, Leopold Bloom.
1: More so than Bloom is Molly. And Molly's soliloquy at the end is a basically two and a half hour, when read aloud, uh, monologue that is just... This woman after her husband's gone to sleep and she's just reflecting. It's her mind drifting through the night and dealing, you know, incorporating, listening to the train outside and thinking about her daughter and dealing with the fact that she is on her period. And it's also full of reflections of her first sexual encounter her affair that she's having at the moment with Blazes Boylan and this man who had written her a letter and then they they meet up and and she talks about uh, jerking him off, pulling him off into her handkerchief and then sleeping with it beneath her pillow for the smell of him. I was leaning over him with my white rice straw hat to take the newness out of it, the left side of my face the best, my blouse open for his last day, transparent kind of shirt he had. I could see his chest, pink. He wanted to touch mine with his for a moment, but I wouldn't let him. He was awfully put out for fear you, you never know, consumption or leave me with a child, embarazada. That old servant, Inez, told me that one drop, even if it got into you at all after I tried with the banana, but I was afraid it might break and get lost up in me somewhere, because they once took something down out of a woman that was up there for years covered with lime salts. They're all mad to get in there. Where they come from, you'd think they could never go far enough up there, and then they're done with you, in a way, till next time. Yes, because there's a wonderful feeling there, so tender all the time. How did we finish it off? Yes, oh yes. I pulled him off into my handkerchief, pretending not to be excited. But I opened my legs. I wouldn't let him touch me inside my petticoat because I had a skirt opening up the side. I tormented the life out of him. First, tickling him. I loved rousing that dog in the hotel. Shh. His eyes shut, and a bird flying below us. He was shy, all the same. I liked him, like that moaning. I made him blush a little when I got over him, that way when I unbuttoned him and took his out and drew back the skin, it had a kind of eye in it. They're all buttons men, down the middle on the wrong side of them. Molly, darling, he called me. What was his name? Jack? Joe? Harry? Mulvey was it. Yes. And that's, like, intimate, man. It's wonderfully dirty. And so much of the book is that. Um, Those moments that are actually... They're not fireworks. It's little moments and encounters and that are not private because they are in this book and they're on display the way a mind is not usually. That's what I think is upsetting and difficult for a lot of people with Ulysses and with Molly is that it is these moments of really just very human relatable obscenity it, that doesn't have an inherent consequence to it. It doesn't have a moral judgment where, you know, horror films, teenagers have sex and then they're killed because that's what happens when you have sex. You're killed if you look at horror movies. But a lot of tropes that are tied to sexual activity in uh, media as we understand it are not there. It just is. It just exists.
0: And that kind of thinking was thought of as kind of a threat to American values, at least by some people. I mean, not all people, but certainly the Anthony Comstocks of the world. But of course, there were other more progressive people in the world at that time who used the Comstock Act to actually promote the same books that were essentially banned by it. Here's James
3: LaRue again. So uh, Mark Twain was around at the time, and I think this is where we came up with the phrase banned in Boston. Because Comstock, I believe, was a Bostoner, and so the notion was if I ban this book, what it does is it fanned the interest because it got a whole bunch of publicity that it didn't get otherwise.
0: Oh, wow. So people would actually use it for the benefit of their book?
3: You know, and the same thing goes on now. So there is no sure route to commercial success to find out that somebody doesn't want you to read a book. And so year after year, when we now track the top 10 most challenged books if the book has not already been a bestseller, it gives them a kind of a nudge where people say, who doesn't want me to read that? That sounds interesting. So while it was
0: banned in the United States and in a few other countries, it became well-known in places like Paris, where it was sold at a famous bookstore called Shakespeare and Company because it was banned elsewhere.
1: I mean, I know originally, I think when it first published and was released in Paris in the Shakespeare and Company shop, I think it sold out within almost immediately. Um but it was also a book that was heavily booklegged, which is to say the book was published secretly and brought across borders and that sort of thing.
0: So Americans and Brits were getting this book through bootleggers because it would be illegal for any American publisher to put this book out. But...
1: Random House wanted to. At that point, Random House was a very small, fledgling publisher. And they were like, listen, if you can get it, if there's a way to publish it, we'd love to, but it's not legal at this point. So they worked with a wonderful lawyer named Morris Ernst, who was one of the founders, one of the co-founders of the ACLU. Because at that point, yes, it was still booklegging to be bringing into the country. So they arranged for it to be seized by customs. Um, and somehow I think they kind of like, you know, tweaked customs and there was a tip that it was coming through. And I think actually when it, when they actually got to Customs, they had to kind of convince them to be like, no, really, take it. Uh, because that gave them grounds to bring a case.
0: And that's what happened. They were arrested and charged with the transportation of pornography, a federal crime. And they fought these charges and it ended up in front of a federal judge in Manhattan.
1: I'm pretty sure it's Second Circuit of Southern New York. The The case is, you know, you know United States versus one book called Ulysses. Uh, thankfully, it went before... Judge Woolsey.
0: He was a famously open-minded judge.
1: Um, and even in his ruling, he talks about how, you know, he went into the reading of this book, and he even got, he gave it to some of his friends so they could read it and he could sit and talk with them about it.
0: And Ernst, the lawyer defending the book, the ACLU co-founder, knew what grounds this ruling was going to be fought on. And it was the standards in which something could be called Pornography.
1: He fought against these ideas that it was written to be titillating, which was one of the big things when determining what was pornographic and what wasn't, is are you writing it to titillate someone, to, to get someone off?
0: And ultimately, Judge Woolsey decided that the feds didn't make their case that Ulysses was pornography.
1: His ruling in the end was that Um, It was not pornographic. This was the view into people's mind. It was a very intimate thing. It was a very human thing. But that it was not inherently pornographic and not designed for that purpose. Um, Especially uh, what he said, it uh, must be kept, you know, one has to take into account that the setting is Celtic and the time is spring. It was basically, it was, it was kind of like, well, you know, boys. It was kind of a boys will be boys kind of thing. Um,
0: Maybe a little bit the Irish will be Irish thing?
1: Yes, it was the Irish will be Irish thing.
0: <laughs> and it set a precedent for artistic freedom in this country. It's funny, if this book was never banned in the first place, it probably wouldn't have become widely known or loved. Now it's legendary, and there's this thing with the book especially among libertarians and free speech advocates. Lisa describes its legendary status this way.
1: You know how so many people haven't read Ulysses but feel that they should and part of it is that it became such an iconic book from this banning and unbanning and this this becoming this benchmark of censorship and overcoming censorship. Um, so it became something that just was a part of people's households. Um, people would own it because it was an iconic book, but not always necessarily read it. And if they did, not always necessarily understand it, because, well, it is a hard book to understand. But the precedent when it comes to obscenity, I think, is a constantly changing rail. That obstacle is always moving back and forth. And it slowly moved forward. I think it was still some time after that that it was unbanned in England. But it contributed towards things like the benchmark case for uh, D.H. Lawrence and Lady Chatterley's Lover being unbanned in the 50s. But yeah, the idea that being human is not inherently obscene and that we have dirty thoughts, I think, sets a precedent in and of itself.
0: It's a precedent we take seriously here at Very Bad Words, so thanks for listening. And if you believe in freedom of artistic expression, why don't you stick it to the ghost of Anthony Comstock and subscribe to Very Bad Words in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks this week to Lisa Flanagan and James LaRue for their time and input, and to executive producer Jill Fincher for her tireless research and frustrated reading. I'm Matt Fiddler. Catch you next time on Very Bad Words.
2: It's really, I got stuck on the fact that he liked to eat kidneys because of the urine. I, I can't get over that. That's disgusting.